and for those of you who are watching around. That guys, we're going to be continuing in our series, the book of Romans, in chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 5 through 10. Follow along and read with me as we uh, dig into these. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. And this is Paul's letter to this young church in Rome. And we're just to take a peek into this letter. So, starting at verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Verse 6. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. Make sure that sinks in. To those who by perseverance in doing good Seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But, look at verse 8, church. To those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. The Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. In verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. Slide 3. So I'm going to ask you some questions to draw you in the text. These are the ones I've asked before, but I'm asking them again because I really want you to be grappling with the Word of God. I am insignificant. What's up there? That's what's important, the Word of God. So here's some questions for us to be asking ourselves again. Are we authentic believers in Jesus Christ? Ask yourself that. Are you an authentic believer in Christ? Or is your attachment to him superficial or casual at best? So think about your relationship with the Lord. Is that attachment to the Lord, is it just a superficial attachment? 
casual at best. How about this? Do you, do we blame God with the, if only I had, if only I had more money, a more understanding spouse, if only I had a better education, a more loving family, a better boss, a better career. There's some challenge questions for us to be thinking about. Do we put God on trial when these circumstances hit us? So let's dig into the text. We're going to kind of just repeat a little bit since it's been almost four weeks, and I want us to just kind of like be brought back into what Paul's been trying to say here. So look at slide four. Or do you think lightly, literally, do you despise the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. I want that verse to sink in. I don't want to gloss over it this morning. Do you think lightly or do you despise the riches? The riches of what? Of his kindness, his tolerance, his patience. And he's, he ends with not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Now, our last time together, we had learned that Paul was dealing with these false assumptions that the Jews back in his day were making as they felt that they were in some way exempt when it comes to God's judgment. They didn't think that applied to them. And Paul wanted them to understand that anyone, <coughs> anyone who thinks that that person can get away with sinning by avoiding the judgment of God is actually showing contempt for God's mercy. We learned that those words, think lightly, are the two Greek words together, katafraneo. You can see I have an underline there where it says think lightly. Think lightly is a little bit too, it, it doesn't go far enough. And really the word actually has the idea of despising. So the kata part of the word means opposition. The phronea part of the word is where we get our idea of mindset. Like think about your mind and where your mind's at right now. It means to have an opinion or a mindset. So the idea is this. This despising or showing contempt. So the idea seems to be that I'm really not taking God's word seriously. And in our last time together, I'd ask you to think about this. Church, when you and I continue to sin habitually, week after week, and we know that what we are doing is wrong and is against what God wants, and we still do it anyway, don't we also? show contempt for God's mercy. Do we not also show, you know, we don't really take it seriously. We looked carefully at these words that are in the text, the word riches that you can see up there. This describes for you and I these, these attributes that, that Paul is unpacking for us of God. Riches speaks of something of extreme value. What then is valuable? God's kindness and tolerance and patience. So we learned that Paul was showing us God's patience and his gentleness and his kindness in that he's withholding his judgment that is rightfully due each and every sinner. That includes us. Do we remember what these words actually mean? The word kindness it talks about moral excellence, church. It has the idea of God's grace, which actually pervades his nature. We look at this word tolerance. 
It means to endure hardship, to bear with. Think about it. God bears with us. He endures the hardship of our sin. That's the idea of the ability to deal with something that is unpleasant. And then patience, which we all have just tons of, right, church? Patience. Long-suffering. The word's back with the mail. The idea here is choosing not to complain or lose your temper or become irritated, and you endure with someone and you remain calm. Paul is saying these attributes are what pervades God's nature. It all points to God's grace and his willingness to forgive. And it expresses, church, the idea that God is withholding his punishment and restraining right now the execution of his wrath. He's not instantly executing his wrath on every sinner. And Paul finishes up here with a question. Not knowing, just think about that question. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Does the kindness of God lead you to repentance, church? Now, this is speaking of a person, when he says this the way he's written it, he's speaking of a person that could really care less of the kindness and goodness of God and that it's designed to lead people to repentance. That's why it's like, don't you realize this? Don't you know? If you're despising this? And we came to understand that the whole purpose of this kindness, tolerance, and patience that the Lord is showing us, church, is in no way designed to excuse sin, but it's designed to move your heart and my heart to repent. God's goodness is designed to bring men and women everywhere to repentance and salvation. We also learn that man wants to take the goodness of God to serve himself. He wants all the blessings from God while he's running away from God. So the first evidence that a man or a woman has been truly born again is that man or that woman repents and believes the gospel. Have you done that yet? Hear me this morning. We cannot see the need for a Savior until we see ourselves as sinners who are in a wrong relationship with God. All of us have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none not righteous, no, not one. That's Romans 3.10. So we need to come to an understanding that is our, it is our sins that have separated us from God. Listen, you don't come to Christ to repent later. How about slide five? How about what Peter wrote in Acts 2.38? Peter said to them, Repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what do we learn about that word repent, church? I know Dr. Corner and I have taught on this word, but I want to make sure that it hits home with us, the word metaneia. It means to go in the opposite direction or to have a change of phrenal, a change of your mind. There is this turning away from sin and turning to God. Slide six. I want to kind of unpack a little bit for you what Paul was teaching to this church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. We call this in theological terms repentance unto life. So let's unpack this. What does Paul say here? 
I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, or the point of turning in the opposite direction. For you, Corinthian church, you were made sorrowful, but it was according to the will of God, so that you may not suffer loss in anything through us. Now look at verse 10, very important. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, look at this now, the sorrow that is according to God's will produces a repentance, a turning away from sin without regret, which leads to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, this is really important scripture here. I want to kind of unpack some terms here because I want you to really see how important this is in our lives. We're going to learn the difference between attrition and contrition. There's a lot of people that come to church and they have attrition and they think they're born again, and they're not. So, slide seven, attrition. Attrition is the sorrow of the world that he's talking about. What does that mean? Attrition has the idea that a person is only sorrowful because he or she got caught. They don't want to change. They're just upset because they got caught. The pride is wounded, and his or her desire is not fulfilled, and there's just this fear of punishment. So that's attrition. I'm only sorry because I got caught, but I really don't want to change or mend my ways. John MacArthur says, this kind of sorrow only leads to guilt, shame, despair, depression, self-pity, and hopelessness. That's what attrition does. It leaves the person broken, full of shame, despair, depression, because they have not let go of a way of life that is destructive and does not honor God. That's attrition. Contrition, however, slide eight, which is the sorrow according to the will of God, has an idea that there is this genuine, sincere remorse for the wrongdoing, for the sinning. There is a genuine grief because of what the sin has done in your life and other people's life. That's contrition, church. Very, very important. Contrition. I have a genuine remorse. Here's a question we need to ask ourselves. When was truly the last time we wept over our sin? Think about God's son on that cross. He was beaten, shed his blood. When he was at the whipping stone, they took a flagellum and ripped his flesh off his body. Blood was spilled there in the garden of Gethsemane when he was praying. Blood was spilled there when he was punched in the face by the Praetorian guard with a hood over his head. Blood was spilled there when the crown of thorns was beaten onto his head with a reed. Blood was spilled there. And on the cross, blood was still spilled there. That's what he did for us. How shameful it is to have attrition. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying he's rejoicing because of the remorse, the genuine remorse the Corinthians were showing wasn't attrition. It wasn't this sorrow of self-pity or I'm upset because I got caught. There was no bitterness in contrition. There's no there's no hurling out profanity and freaking out because I got caught. He's stating that their repentance, their contrite heart, 
was seeing their sin for what it was, grieving over that sin, turning away from that sin, and there was no regret for giving up the sin. So we have to ask yourself, do we regret when we give up our sin? Well, it's quiet again, Dr. Carter. I don't know. See, they didn't play the role of a victim. They didn't want the system to try to bail them out. They didn't try to justify their sinful behavior or mount some type of defense. Their, their contrition was according to God's will. There was a repentance without regret, which led from turning away from sin and turning to salvation in Christ. I hope we see the difference now, church. As we've learned, most people have the wrong conclusion about God. We saw this in the Jews that Paul spoke with. Hear me this morning. When a person truly repents, and that person comes to realize that they do not have a righteousness of their own, there's no act on their own by where they on their own can make themselves right with God. Their mouth is stopped. They have no defense. All they can do is cry out to Christ for salvation. And when he fills them with the Holy Spirit, they see things differently. Here's the question. Do you see things differently? Do you, the person that comes to a saving faith in Christ begins to see and experience God's grace and mercy and compassion. There's this profound change of mind and will. There's this changed attitude towards Christ. Ask yourself, what's your attitude towards Christ? The Jews' attitude towards Christ is they didn't want it to follow him or believe it. They wanted things to go along their own way. Look at slide nine. What did Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Good works, being a good person, is not going to get you into glory. Unless you are born again, you and I cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we could just imagine how that must have shaken Nicodemus to the core, hiding in that tree. Church, to be born again, or born from above, literally in the Greek, has the idea of this radical change that actually makes a person a new creature created in Christ Jesus. Listen. Hear me. If you're truly born again, you know you're not the same person you used to be before you got saved anymore. Ask yourself, can that be truly said about me? Slide 10. Where's it say that, Pastor Jack? I'm glad you asked. How about 2 Corinthians 5.17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? What's it say? He's a new creature. The old you passed away. Behold, things have become new. So what does it mean to be in Christ, in Christos? See, the idea of being in Christ has this idea, the word in, has the, it speaks, church, listen, it speaks of this intimate union, this oneness of heart, this oneness of mind and pur purpose. It speaks of a permanent fixed position. No one can snatch you out of his hands. You cannot. Don't believe the false lie that you can fall from grace and lose your salvation. If that's true, then this verse is lying to you. 
but it's not lying to you. The idea of in Christ and Christois has the idea of this permanent fixed position. There's this intimate union, this oneness with the Lord. Paul then also says new creature. This speaks of this regeneration. This speaks of the new birth. Your sins have been paid in full by the death of Jesus Christ. This means that a new believer lives and walks in Christ day by day. And as a new creature, your whole being, your nature, your life, your behavior begins to change. Ask yourself, is that true about me? Apply the verse to your life. The old things have passed away. What does that mean, church? It means that you and I no longer live according to the old way we used to live before we got saved. Our whole life and being is now in the hands of Christ. You, you no longer rely on yourself for salvation. Well, maybe if I'm just good enough, he'll let me in. It doesn't work that way. Salvation is all God's work. It is all God's plan. doesn't matter. Listen, this is important. I don't care how many addictions you've had. It doesn't matter what your past was. doesn't matter how many felonies you have. doesn't matter. If you come to saving faith in Christ, you're not that person anymore. Think about it. If you're truly born again, the old things that you and I value, the old ideas and desires and priorities, they've passed away. Paul says new things have come. What does that mean, Pastor Jack? I'm glad you asked again. Well, think about it. God the Holy Spirit plants brand new desires in you. As you soak into the Word of God, He plants the new values, new ideas. Your priorities are new. They changed because you are now a follower of Christ. His way is what governs your life. Paul doesn't say, hey, you're just a remodeled person or an improved model. It's not like an insurance claim where he just fixes you up to pre-loss condition because you and I were born dead in our sins. He says you're a new creature. Hear me this morning. A person can play the role of being religious. A person can come to church and sing some songs. But hear this church, he cannot make himself a Christian. Only Jesus Christ can make you a Christian. This alone is the action of God on you and I, the creature. It is God who recreates our soul. It is God alone who gives a person the faith to believe the gospel in the first place. Put up slide 11. I like how the Heidelberg Confession says this. If you ever really want to read a phenomenal doc, document to really help you with your theology, get a copy of the Heidelberg Confession. It asks the question, what is true faith? If a friend came up to you and asked you that question, what is true faith? Look at what the Heidelberg Confession says. True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. It is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us, not by us, but by Christ, <clears throat> not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven and have forever been made right with God 
and have been granted salvation. Isn't that beautiful, church? That's just amazing. <clears throat> so then, what does this mean for you and I? To believe not only involves knowledge and intellectual conviction about the gospel's testimony in Christ, church to believe also involves obedient trust, walking in obedience and reliance on Christ as our Savior and our Lord. The question this morning is, do you believe that? If you were to drop dead this afternoon, do you believe that? Your soul depends on that. Hear me this morning. See, the person who has true faith, <clears throat> that person no longer looks at himself or herself to consider himself or herself good enough to be right with the Father. You see, that person only looks at the finished work of Jesus Christ who bled and died on that cross for our sins and it rests entirely alone in that one fact, church. <clears throat> and in verse 5, slide 12. Look at how Paul just builds and builds and builds on this. <coughs> but, he says, because of your stubbornness, because of your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath. That's God's anger against sin. That's the word orge. You're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. There's the word orge. And revelation, there's that word apocalypsis, of the righteous judgment of God. See, but, that's a negative, because of your stubbornness, Lerata, that stubbornness and that, un, that unrepentant heart, you're storing up for yourself. You're doing the packing. You're doing the storing, is what he's saying. That word stubbornness, sclerates, has the idea of something that is hard, callous. It speaks of this harsh, inhumane character, that stubbornness. Inhumane, harsh character. In fact, actually, it's where we get our English word sclerosis from. When a doctor speaks arterial sclerosis, he's speaking of the hardening of the arteries. So he's using that term to give them, as well as us, this clear picture of the spiritual condition of our hearts being hardened. And so they're now unresponsive to the Lord. Unrepentance. Thanks, Al. Is choosing not to go in a different way. Remember, metanoia means that you're going from one way to the other. But when they put the alpha at the front of the word, the ametanoia, the idea is you're choosing not to repent. You're choosing not to go in the direction of God. See, an unrepentant person, church, hear me this morning. There's no change of mind, no change of character, no change of your heart or your will. We saw how Paul used those words to speak of a person's heart unrepentant heart. You see, Paul wanted the Jews back then to understand, as well as you and I today, that the trouble with man is sin in his heart. Think about it. How many times we all sin every day in thoughts, words, deeds, actions, motives. We even sin in our prayers. Think about it. It's just because of the stubbornness and unrepentant heart. Why? Our hearts are the directional system of our life, church. So the essence of sin, which is breaking God's law, anything we do that does not glorify God is sin. It's found in each of us. So ask yourself this. What controls your heart? You see, whatever controls your heart is going to control your behavior. 
Because every human being lives out of his heart. So ask yourself, what is controlling your behavior? When you sin, what's controlling your behavior? My behavior. He says, because of the harsh, callous, hardened heart, because you've chosen not to turn away from your sin, you've chosen not to change the direction of your life, you're storing, look at slide 13, you're storing up wrath in the day of judgment. So here's some questions. How is your heart lately? Is there any bitterness, anger, people that you've chosen not to forgive in your heart? Uh-oh, boy, it got quiet. Any stubbornness going on in there? Any, any hardening of the attitudes going on in there? Any, any hardened callousness against God? Is that plaguing your heart? Because you keep putting him on trial because things don't change in your life. And yet most of the people don't change. I never see him in the Word of God. Here's another one. Are you still living the way you were before you claim you got saved. Ask yourself. He says you're storing up wrath in the day of judgment. Look up slide 14. Here, Paul, the last book of the Bible, is talking about the final great white throne judgment of God. Very, very scary place for a person to be. This is the final judgment where you're cast into an exanaraskatos, the lake of fire, or you're with Jesus. What does he say? Then I saw a great white throne, and him, that's Christ, who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled, <clears throat> and there was no place for, found for them. It means you can't hide from God. When this happens, you can't hide anywhere from God. And I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. So what does this tell us? There's a recording. There's an accounting. There's a book of life as well. It's in the plural sense. The dead, they were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their what? Deeds. Even though we may think we get away with stuff here on earth and we can hide from people, this is telling all of us, you are naked before God. You can't hide from him. The sea gave up its dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is what it's called, the second death, the lake of fire. Now look at the final verse. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I want that to sink in for a minute. This, is, this isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a, a, a storybook. This is fact and truth, church. God is real. This is fact and truth. Someday, you and I are going to draw our last breath. They're going to hit us with the paddles. We're not coming back. And we're going to have to stand before God, 2 Corinthians 5.10, give an account of everything you and I did, whether good or bad, while we were alive here on earth right now. This is, this, this, this is the second judgment. This is when we stand before God at that Bema seat. How about slide 16? 
Paul says, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Paul is just correlating with the book of Revelation. He's following up on the statement in verse 5 about this day of wrath, this final judgment that we just read. What does Paul mean when he says he will render, God will render? Greek word has the idea of a payment being made. See, Paul's continuing to make the case to the Jews that everyone, doesn't matter your nationality, your color of your skin, your ethnic background, doesn't none of that matters. Each person is going to be judged separately and individually. And he's continuing to make the case to the Jews that everyone is going to have to stand before God. Now remember, the Jews thought they're exempt. They thought they're safe. Hey, we're God's chosen people. We have the law, the prophets. We have circumcision. So they thought we have this special position with God. And Paul is making it clear that just because you're Jewish does not mean that you will ever escape the judgment of God. Every human being that has ever lived will appear before the judgment seat of God, each person according to his deeds. There's that individual judgment for each person. Slide 17. Almost done. Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each man may be recompensed. Each man will be paid for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. doesn't matter if you, you die at sea, space, on earth. doesn't matter how you die. Each person will be judged according to deeds. You know, it's really interesting is Paul wasn't teaching the Jewish people some new theology or doctrine. It was a teaching of something that they never heard before. You've got to be careful that you, you know, in theology and your Bible reading that these verses over here apply to me, but these verses in the Bible here, they don't apply to me. Every word in the Bible applies to everything, you and me. So we have to be careful that we don't, well, God's a good God. He wouldn't do that. God's a righteous God, and he does do that. He does judge. So Paul's like, this isn't some new theology. Slide 18. Look at Psalm 62, 12. This is Old Testament. And loving kindness is yours, Yahweh, for you recompense, same word, a man according to his work. That word, recompense, has the same idea, transaction or payment. What is Paul doing here? He's simply quoting from the very exact same scriptures that the Jews boast about having and these very scriptures that they rely on to make it clear to them that God is going to judge every person according to his deeds. So the Jew cannot rely on his nationality. The person who's brought up in a Christian home can't rely upon a Christian family to make him saved. You cannot rely on church membership or being baptized to escape the judgment of God. In fact, look what Peter wrote, slide 19. There's Peter 4, 17, 18. Look what Peter wrote. For, now this, this is really hits home. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us who are born again Christians first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. 
And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? That should be sobering, church, for all of us. It is clear from the text that there is a fate which awaits the righteous as well as the unrighteous. Let's look at verse 7 and 8. We're almost done. Slide 20. <clears throat> so Paul says, To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory, honor, immortality, and eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious, those who do not obey the truth, those who obey unrighteousness, there is wrath and indignation. Paul, what did you mean when you used the word persevere, Paul? The idea here is you're, you're bearing up under difficult circumstances. You're, you're bearing up under suffering. You have patience. Let me ask you this question this morning. Who do you and I seek after, church? When things are really, really going bad, who do we, who do we seek after? More importantly, whose glory do we seek after? Paul uses the word doxa, where we get the word doxology from. The English word simply means glory. So the idea that Paul is trying to get across to us with this word is that he's with doxa, with glory, is everything that God himself represents. So the glory spoken of here embraces all which is excellent in God's nature, his splendor, his majesty. God's glory has made itself manifest or revealed in and through the person of Jesus Christ. It speaks of everything that's true about God. All of the attributes are summed up in God's glory. So then what Paul is speaking here concerning this group of people with perseverance and doing good clearly states that they are seeking for glory, honor, immortality, and eternal life. He's describing for all of us what the life of a true follower of Christ is like. Paul uses the word immortality. What does that word really mean? Here's the, here's the interesting part. Saved or unsaved, when you drop dead, you are going to live forever. It's where your destination is going to be. Your soul is an immortal soul. When your body rots and dies in the ground, your soul either goes to be with the Lord or it's going to go in another place that you don't want it to be. But you are going to have this unending existence. So those who are the saints of God, those who are truly born again, if you are truly born again, ask yourself, is it my desire to be with Christ? Is it my desire to spend eternity with him? Ask yourself, does that represent you and your thinking this morning? Do we desire the things that Christ desires? Do we persevere even when it's struggling and it's painful and doing good anyway. See, the Christian who perseveres in doing good already knows that the world is against them. They are subject to the onslaughts of this sinful world and Satan himself. So true followers of Christ, true saints of God are tried and tested by all kinds of things that happen to them, whether it's in their families, their jobs. They know that they are going to be hammered to the core. Satan wants you to give up 
and just fold your deck of cards. But they persevere. When things get real bad and all the gates of hell are against them, they still hold on to that relationship with Yahweh when the world tries to beat them down. How about you and me this morning? Can that be said about us? We have to constantly remind ourselves, we live in a fallen world. Do you understand that? You can look up here. Don't worry about what's going on back there. We live in a fallen world. How about slide 22? Hebrews 3.14. For we have become partakers of Christ if, if, there's your clause, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. If you came to faith in Christ back here, it should have ongoing effects in your life right now here. If I truly surrender my life to Christ and I'm striving to walk with Him, no matter how difficult things are, there should be that ongoing continuing behavior that I'm going to hold on to Him no matter how horrible this thing in the world is. No matter how horrible it is in our homes, broken homes, broken marriages, loss of jobs. During these times of hardship, we need to hold fast that Christ died for us. And this is only a temporal time here. Something to think about, church. You see, Paul, right, he wants us to hold on to our assurance, even when things with our natural eyes seem bleak. This begs the question this morning. I'm almost done. Do we have this assurance? Hear me this morning, church. Please understand this. We need to understand that the righteous man does not remain in sin. He does not go on sinning as a practiced, ongoing way of life. Doesn't mean he doesn't stumble. But when a sinner, when a born-again Christian stumbles and is in sin, he grieves over it and he turns away from it and walks with the Lord. Ask yourself that question. Think about it, church. When you and I stumble into sin, do we grieve over it? Do we turn away from that behavior? And do we metanoia, do we walk again with the Lord? Let me finish up with this. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. I want to just take a moment and finish up here <clears throat> with the idea of selfishly ambitious. Two very, very interesting words. The idea of being selfishly ambitious, church, has this idea of a person that is rebellious and he's argumentative about everything. You see, a selfishly ambitious person, here Paul's speaking of a malicious person. This is a person who causes strife and is who, who is opposed to God because his desire is only to please him or herself. It's the person that has thinking that the whole world revolves around them because they're going to get what they want. It talks about a person that will step on anybody to get what they want or manipulate anybody to get what they want, when they want, how they want, because it's all about them. That is a selfishly ambitious person who clearly does not obey the truth of God's word. See, Paul is speaking of a person that wants to live life according to his 
or her own likes and desires. It speaks of a person when God speaks to this person, when God tries to reach out the call to this person. This person just argues with God. And here's the thing. Because of the sin in his life or her life, he or she values their opinions over God's. Well, if God really loved me, he wouldn't let bing, 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 bing. God really loved me. He bled and died on a cross. But because we don't like things the way they're happening in our life, we're going to put our thinking and our opinions over God. That's somebody that doesn't spend a whole lot of time in the Word of God. Because I can tell you right now, the more time you spend in the Word of God, the more God changes your heart and mind. So your thoughts become thinking His thoughts instead of your opinions. So a selfishly ambitious person willfully chooses that they're not going to obey God. They're going to hurl out profanity and curse God any chance they get because they think that they're right and God is wrong because they're going through troubles. So they want to live life according to their desires and goals. Self-centeredness, church. Paul is speaking of a person who is outside the life of Christ, who is dead in his or her sins. Where does it say that, Pastor Jack? I'm so glad you asked. Slide 23. Let's finish up with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul writing to the church of Ephesus. says, you know, guys, you were dead. Now, he's talking about spiritually dead. Dead spiritual life. You were not born again yet. You were living according to the world, living according to the course of this age, doing things for your, yourself and no one else. You were dead in your trespassing and your sin. You formally walked, your peripateo, your way of life was according to the course of this world. The world was your navigation system. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now presently working in the sons of disobedience. Paul says, listen, we too, we also formally lived in the lust of our flesh. We also indulged in the desires of our flesh and of our phroneo, our mind. And we too were children of wrath, even as the rest. The question is, are we still living our life according to the course of this world, where this world becomes the GPS of your life and this world navigates how you think and feel about everything? Or do we soak ourselves and inculcate the Word of God so much into ourselves that we're going to walk by faith and not by sight, even when things look bleak and horrible, because we're going to follow Christ? Because He's the one that's going to direct our path. He's the navigation system to get us through the world. doesn't mean things are going to be a bed of roses. Are we still living in the lust of our flesh? Do we still indulge in the desires of our flesh and our minds? Now, listen, I'm finishing up, and I know that these are very uncomfortable questions. But Paul lays out slide 24. He's talking about people that are selfishly ambitious. They're all about self. They're not going to obey the Word of God. They're not going to obey truth. They're going to follow unrighteous behavior. He says there's wrath and indignation. He's giving you and I this morning a description, a full-blown description of people who do not want to live for God and obey His truth. Ungodly people 
have a contentious spirit. Ungodly people, when they come to the law of God, they're not going to obey it. They think they're above it or they're excused. <clears throat> they're going to listen to the enticements of this world. And they're going to follow those enticements. They're going to obey them. They're going to chase after it. They're going to spend their money on it and enjoy it. But the person back in verse 7 is the one with, by perseverance is waiting on the Lord. The person back in verse 7 is going to spend that intimate alone time reading the scriptures, praying to the Lord, fellowshipping with the Lord. They're not going to treat Lord like he's a casual Tinder date where I'm just going to call on you when I want something from you. No. They want that intimate relationship where the Lord speaks into their life. There is nothing more precious than having the Holy Spirit speak into your heart through the Scriptures because the Word of God never works independently from the Scriptures. Nothing, church, in this life is greater or more important than to know the Lord personally and to give Him glory. Nothing on earth. So I ask you this morning, which group that Paul speaks of here in these two verses, ask yourself, where do you see yourself? Where do you see yourself? Paul says in Romans 9 to 10, slide 25, real quick. He says, listen, here's the warning. There will be tribulation and distress for every suke, every soul of man, now look at the verse, church. I'm begging you, please. You look at it. There will be tribulation. There will be distress for every soul of man who does evil, the Jew and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace. Peace is the absence of hostility. When your relationship, when you come to faith in Christ, it's no longer this war. There's a peace to everyone who does good. So what is he talking about here? What's he saying? What does Paul mean when he uses the word tribulation? We don't really use that word anymore today. It's a very interesting word. It's the word thlipsis. It actually means to break, to crush, press, squeeze. Has your sin in your life, crushed, pressed in against you, squeezed you into discomforting, very painful, uncomfortable places? Has your sin been the phileo, the solipsis of your life? Church, back in the Old Testament days, when they would separate the wheat from the chaff, they would put the wheat on this floor, and then they would beat the word, beat the, beat the wheat, so they would separate the wheat and the chaff. The tool that they used was called a tribulum, hence the word tribulation. So I ask you, he says distress, narrowness, distress, confined spaces, discomfort. Ask yourself, hasn't my sin beat me down enough where God gives me over so that I will come to the end of myself? The end of my addiction to the heroin, the crack, the drugs, the alcohol, the broken homes, the broken families. Has my sin beat me enough where I'm turning from it and I'm going to turn to Christ? 
tribulation, distress. I'll stop at slide 26. But Jesus says this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. I know this was a tough one. I know it was tough to fit in the ear, as my father-in-law would say. I'm going to ask you to do business with God this morning. Listen, you had no control over when you would be born. You had no control over your parents would be, your gender, the year, the time, the moment you would be born. You had no control over any of it. Ask yourself this. If you were to die this afternoon, if you were to drop dead, and they couldn't bring you back, ask yourself this question. And you ended up standing before the true and living God who knit you in your mother's womb, who gives you every breath of life. And he was to ask you this question this morning. Now you think, listen, you know someday it's going to come to an end. You can't be dumb enough to not realize that someday you're going to drop dead. And if everything this Bible says is true, and I believe it's true, you're in trouble without Christ. This is serious business. This isn't a game. If you were to drop dead, get killed this afternoon, and you stood before the living God, and he was to ask you, why in the world should I let you into heaven? Think about what your answer would be. Well, Lord, I did things good. I did some good things in my life, Lord. Matt, doesn't matter. Well, Lord, I helped some people. Matt, doesn't matter. Lord, I did this, this, that, and the other, Lord. Matt, put money in the offering plate, Lord. Matt, went to Sunday school, Lord. Matt, none of that stuff's going to get you into heaven. There's only one answer to that question. Because Jesus Christ died on that cross, spilled that crimson blood as payment for my sin debt. So I have transferred from trusting in good works 